If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world including 75% of the Fortune 500 trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com Atlassian Nearly 700 soldiers and seamen died when the Mary Rose foundered as she sailed from Portsmouth to encounter the French fleet watched aghast by Henry VIII. The idea of finding a specific wreck in the middle of a seabed out at sea was quite preposterous in a way. There was substantial remains of a Tudor warship underneath the seabed. It's a really boy's own sort of story of adventure and finding the ship then just starting to do deeper trenches into the Tudor layers to see what was there. And we were absolutely astounded. When you swim along the decks, you're sort of swimming on your side, looking at things, tilting your head to try and make things come, come back to normal. So on every dive, you might, you might find a unique object uh, or something different or something that nobody had seen for 500 years uh, or knew it existed. So um, that was tremendously exciting. Soon the vital cargo was being lifted over the Solent to the barge waiting to take it safely into Portsmouth. We were inventing it as we went along, inventing new techniques and so on. It sort of puffed out like smoke. I mean, just like a dragon breathing or something. The ship had come alive. It was sort of breathing again. It was like doing CPR. As the skeletal fingers of a fragile wooden frame emerged from the murky waters off the coast of Portsmouth, the grey day was shattered by a celebratory blast of a cannon and cries of joy from onlookers nearby. 
a relic of the past, a warship from England's maritime age was being dredged from the depths and its history revived. But this was not just any ship. These worn timbers were once the pride of Henry VIII's army by sea, the great Tudor warship, the Mary Rose. Forty years ago, when the Mary Rose was raised from the seabed on the 11th of October 1982, it was a momentous occasion, met with global broadcasts and cheers from excited bystanders watching along the banks. This daring feat of underwater archaeology was the culmination of over 17 years of hard work by a huge team of divers, archaeologists and scientists. But how did they manage to rescue this long-lost ship from the seafloor? And how do you find one single shipwreck in the whole entire sea? I'm Emily Briffitts, and in this new History Extra podcast series, we'll be marking the 40th anniversary of the raising of the Mary Rose by delving back into its fascinating history and uncovering the secrets this Tudor shipwreck has hidden out of reach for more than four centuries. We'll reveal why the discovery of the Mary Rose has been so influential in shaping and challenging our understanding of the Tudor era. From the heat of naval battle and manoeuvres of royal politicking, and explore what we can learn from the treasures found in the murky depths. In this episode... We're joining the underwater archaeology teams as they dive down to uncover the secrets of a shipwreck lost to time. To help us navigate through this story's choppy waters, I spoke to Christopher Dobbs, a diver and archaeological supervisor in the salvage of the Mary Rose, who is now head of interpretation at the ship's museum. You'll also be hearing from someone else who was there that day, Dr Alex Hildred, a fellow diver and the Mary Rose's current head of research and curator of ordnance. The Mary Rose is an absolute treasure trove of Tudor history. And don't worry, we'll be exploring all of that in depth later in the series. But I couldn't resist starting with the astounding discovery and colossal effort taken to bring one of Henry VIII's great warships home to port. Over to Chris. The search for the Mary Rose and the excavation were just stunning feats of human endeavour in in my mind. But then the salvage was yet another stunning feat. I mean, to to raise a Tudor shipwreck from the seabed is a ridiculous and I think very British idea. In fact, the Mary Rose excavation is the largest ever underwater archaeological excavation that's ever taken place. And that's even now, 40 years later. And I think that is absolutely astounding that nobody's actually surpassed us in the last 40 years. In terms of the number of dives we did, over 29,000. The number of divers we involved, over 500 avocational divers. And in terms of the number of objects we brought up, I mean, over 19,000. I mean, it was the, the largest ever excavation. So that was worthy of note. Now... Before we delve too deep into this story, let's pause here for a moment. While the search for, excavation and raising of the Mary Rose was a tremendous feat, attempts to recover the ship actually have a much longer history, stretching back far past the 20th century, more than 400 years further in fact. Almost immediately after it sank on the 19th of July 1545, 
work began to retrieve the Mary Rose from the seabed. By the 5th of August that year, its sails and rigging had been removed. But these efforts stalled when days later, several of the masts broke and any attempt to pull the ship upright failed. On the 10th of June 1836, the Mary Rose was found once again by diver Henry Abernitz. He'd been asked to uncover the cause of the snagging of fishermen's nets and in doing so made an incredible discovery. An old timber. But close by lay a gun. Could it be a sign that something more significant lay nearby? Only a few days later, two divers, John Dean and William Edwards, were hired to investigate further. They dug holes and used shells as explosive charges to penetrate the silt, marketing the objects they found to museums and selling them at auctions. Finally, when the cost of salvaging the ship outweighed the income from it, the project was abandoned. And this brings us back to the 20th century, when a wild plan was hatched to relaunch the search. Well, the modern search for the Mary Rose started with this amazing man called Alexander McKee. And I believe he had childhood dreams that he'd find the Mary Rose sometime. But he started a project called Project Solent Ships, which was, I think, him disguising the fact that he was looking for the Mary Rose, but he called it Project Solent Ships in case he didn't succeed. Because the idea of finding a specific wreck in the middle of the seabed out at sea was quite preposterous in a way. So he started searching in 1965 using teams of people from South Sea Subacqua Club and Southampton Subacqua Club and really just being persistent, you know, going out diving, completely self-funded, paying for the fuel of the fishing boats they used to go out there for years and years. But the trouble is that even though in 1966 he and John Towles found a chart which, you know, mark X marks the spot in the middle of the Solent, it was still under metres of mud. So even when they had an X marked the spot, it wasn't possible to see it. And then they got help from a, uh, an American called Doc Edgerton from Massachusetts Institute of Technology to actually find it with sonar. And they located anomalies, as they call them, on the seabed. But you still couldn't see it. So it was like looking for a needle in a haystack, literally, but underneath the seabed, underwater. So quite astonishing, that search. But finally, in the winter of 1771, some of the timbers were exposed and they went down and they saw them and they'd actually found the Mary Rose for the first time. They'd found things like guns, just perhaps off-site, but now at last, in 1971, they'd found the Mary Rose. And against all odds, and I think Alexander McKee had to fight the cynics you know, because people would say that this is impossible. You know, this is the 1970s, late 60s. So all credit is due to him for his perseverance and his dive team carrying on until they found it. And as Dr Alex Hildred told me, it quickly became clear that Alexander McKee's team were onto something. When it was first seen, there were only like four or five timbers. And by the end of the day, they'd followed the sort of line of 40 timbers, 60 timbers, and basically followed an outline of a ship and realised that, that there was something quite big, potentially um, buried beneath the seabed. And then over the years, trenches were put through in specific places to try and understand how much was there, looking for the bow and looking for the stern. And then a trench across the bow revealed three decks in situ in 1978. And the realisation was then that there was a complete half ship buried within the sediments. And that in itself is 
a really interesting sight to work because it's on its side at 60 degrees. So when you swim along the decks, you're sort of swimming on your side, looking at things with tilting your head to try and make things come, come back to normal. But what it means is once she's lifted, you've got a doll's house vision of a ship. So you're, you're able to look inside it. You're not just looking at these wooden walls on both sides. It was a spectacular discovery. But how could McKee guarantee that this was the Mary Rose? As we've said before, divers had previously stumbled upon unexpected wrecks while searching for others. Had this team actually found one of Henry VIII's warships? Well, the Mary Rose searched for the Mary Rose. It, it was always known that it sunk off South Sea Castle, and there's an engraving that, that was made from contemporary pictures which, which show it. And so you can almost do transits and work out where it should be. But the Solent is a big place, so a lot of time looking for it. I think the first thing was a Tudor gun that was found. So a magnetic anomaly revealed a, a gun that was absolutely Tudor. It had been found in the 19th century by fishermen had snagged their nets. Divers who were working on another wreck went and found a bit of timber and then a big gun. And that, that was identified as Mary Rose then because it was the only ship that was carrying a gun of that date, a big bronze gun, and the uh, weapons list, if you like. And there's an inventory for the weapons on board the Mary Rose. And so it was possible to suggest that, that that's the only ship it could come from. Built by English gun founders, it was dated, I can't remember, 1536 or something. So it was perfect with the refit of the Mary Rose. And then when Alex McKee and, and South Sea Sabaco Club found this iron gun in, in 1970, that again was so Tudor in its form that it dated it. So there are a number of objects. There's nothing that says ye olde Mary Rosie on it, but it's just circumstantial evidence. You know, we've got dated objects that are all absolutely right. Um, we've got stratigraphic objects which are Tudor. So it's it's a combination of things. It says it's a Mary Rose, but at the time, you know, the gun clinched it. Okay. So the team knew this had to be the Mary Rose. But the question in everyone's mind was, what to do next? Fortunately, Alexander McKee was extremely responsible, and rather than he and his divers just straight away digging for treasure, as they might have called it in those days, in the middle of the ship, they engaged an archaeologist, uh, Dr Margaret Rule, who helped them do the work archaeologically according to the best principles. And again, they showed enormous restraint by gradually over the period from 1971 to 1978, exposing the whole of the outside of the ship. So it, it proved that there was the substantial remains of a Tudor warship underneath the seabed. And when they realised the enormity of this, they then decided to have two meetings. It was actually extremely well disciplined. They had one meeting with surveyors and architects and, and salvage people to work out could the Mary Rose be raised and excavated at the bottom of the sea? And a second meeting was with more historians and archaeologists and heritage people and mayors and things like that and re religious people to answer the question, should it be raised from the bottom of the sea? And it was very responsible for 50 years ago to think about both those sides of the equation. And it was only because... Both meetings came back with the answer, yes, A, it should be done, and B, it could be done, that they then went ahead and formed a charitable trust called the Mary Rose Trust in early of 1979 so that they could engage full-time people because up until then it had been completely avocational. I won't say amateur because it was highly professional, but avocational. 
and hire trained archaeologists, set up the conservation laboratories so that this could be done for the benefit of the nation, not for individual profit or for putting things on their mantelpieces. And that really, for the 1970s, was quite far-reaching, responsible and revolutionary, I would say. A plan had been drawn up. Next came the excavation. After they had outlined the whole of the outside of the hull and the Mary Rose Trust had been formed and we had all the conservation facilities ashore, what we did was to first excavate the top layers. And this is according to the best archaeological principles. So we excavated the layers that built up in the ship from 1545 till the 1980s because they're the top layers, because of the way archaeology is, things are laid down in layers. And even those top layers had really fascinating objects in them, but they were objects lost in the Solent and lost on the site, whether it's bottles or clay pipes, which hadn't been used in Britain in the mid-16th century, just like you would on a land site where you might take away the medieval and Roman stuff before you get down to the Iron Age and Bronze Age stuff and so on. So that's what we were doing for some of 1979, but then just starting to do deeper trenches into the Tudor layers to see what was there. And we were absolutely astounded. So from late 79 and then 1980 and 81, we were then excavating in the actual Tudor layers and just bringing up stunning objects. On every dive, you might find a unique object or something different, or something that nobody had seen for 500 years, uh, or knew it existed. So that was tremendously exciting. There were challenges, of course, uh, partly because of the very, very low visibility in the Solent. The mud that was actually protecting the objects and the ship under the seabed, it was there because there's a lot of mud and silt in the water column. So for the divers, it was very, very difficult to see. And as we dug deeper and deeper, you can imagine we're, we're digging in trenches like you might see on a deep excavation on land. So we had these things called trapezes, which meant that as you dug deeper and deeper, you could hang on to a gas pipe system. It was like a scaffold pipe system, but it, it was lighter. Because one of the problems with excavating underwater is that we used a, a fantastic device called an airlift which some call an underwater vacuum cleaner because it acts like a vacuum cleaner. But if, for instance, you push with your hand one way to remove the soil, because you are completely weightless, what happens is you just get pushed the other way. So you needed a firm structure to hold yourself on to do the work. And we didn't want to use the structure of the May Rose or you know, put our knees on the seabed because it could damage the objects. So we generally worked off these pipes but it's just fantastic being an excavator underwater because you can float or support yourselves on these poles above the site because you're completely weightless. So on land sites, they're actually kneeling or lying or lying uncomfortably on scaffold planks exactly on the site, on all the objects, whereas we could float over them. So although there were challenges of working underwater, particularly with light and the amount of dive time you could get and the visibility... There were also enormous advantages of working in that environment. And so, of course, we maximised the advantages and, and minimised the disadvantages to produce an amazing... This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, 
the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Result. But these weren't the only problems. The potential for decay also meant that no time could be lost if the wreck was to be saved. We used to have to rebury it between seasons in order to preserve the timber, so that it was a bit of a race against time. But as we began to excavate, you realise just how full it is. So it was, you know, a living ship. and It was it had these 500 people on board, and you've got it, some of the places, it's just literally like somebody had moved out of a room, although it was on its side and a bit chaotic, and obviously things had fallen down. But just everyday things in between that, you'd have the huge big guns or open chests of longbows, and then in the storage area, you'd have complete chests nailed shut. So it, every space was slightly different. You know, the, the food still in the galley, in the pot, being ready to be cooked. The bones for the next day's meal hanging over the side in order to get desalinated. In March 1979, a salvage vessel called Sleipner was moored on site. This meant that divers and fine staff could work in shifts, helping to accelerate progress. But this wasn't the only way to move things along. One of the challenges of the excavation was that a lot of things we did had just never ever been done before. But that was also the fun of working as an underwater archaeologist in the 1970s and 1980s. You know, we were inventing it as we went along, inventing new techniques and so on. One of my favourite techniques that I developed was raising chests in one piece. So whereas previously on other sites and so on, normally you would just open up a chest underwater and excavate it as slowly as you could, but there's always constraints of time. What I did was to get colleagues to make up a modern box just larger 
than the chest that I'd found underwater. And then very, very carefully excavate around it and then lift it up underwater and place it in this sort of container and bring the whole container to the surface. And then we could excavate the chest on board the salvage ship or ashore. Not necessarily any better, but it would save us that all-important dive time for doing other things. But excavating these chests again, I suppose in a way it was fun because we were sharing the excitement of opening up a chest and finding someone's possessions inside that nobody had touched for 500 years. To, to me, this was a sort of Tutankhamun moment. I mean, you remember Howard Carter sort of looking through a crack in Tutankhamun's tomb and, and Carnarvon behind him saying, what can you see? What can you see? And he just turns around and says, wonderful things, wonderful things. And, and that's what it was like. And in fact, what is so important about these chests is that they generally contain one of everything. So there's one pair of shoes, one dagger, one hat, and so on. So we're pretty sure they belong to one person. And because of that, it means you get a real insight into a single individual on board. I mean, that's just a small example of one aspect of the excavation that I found particularly fascinating. I think during the excavation, there were a number of real standout points. One of them was when in 1982, there was a small team of archaeologists just coming to finish the last bits of archaeology within the ship. And one of those last bits, suddenly we were, we were excavating this collapsed galley and then came across a complete wall. And this was in about June 1982, maybe end of May. And it was a side of an, of an absolutely complete galley. We'd, be, we'd just been on the collapsed bit. And that was amazing because it meant that we'd got this wonderful complete feature, but it we didn't have much time to do it, so it was a, re- a real race against time. Underwater excavation clearly posed a whole series of challenges. But those involved were undeterred. In fact, they had even grander ambitions. When the Mary Rose Trust was formed in early 1979, the original aims were always to raise the Mary Rose, if at all possible. In fact, they had a, a series of absolutely fantastic objectives that they made, which, I mean, in a way, were absolutely bonkers, but very forward-looking for the uh, 1970s, which was to find, record, excavate, raise, bring ashore, preserve, publish, report on, and display for all time in Portsmouth, the Mary Rose, all for the education and benefit of the nation. So that that aim to excavate, raise, and bring ashore was always in there. But even up until 1982, we weren't absolutely sure it was possible We weren't absolutely sure we would get the funding from the public or other bodies to do it. And so Margaret Rule, who was the director of archaeology, director of the excavation, she always had plans that if for some reason we failed to bring it up or couldn't raise the money, we would then rebury the ship in the seabed so it could be protected under the seabed for another 500 years. So the intention was always to bring it up if we could. And by the end of 1981, we just about finished excavating the whole of the insides of the ship. So it was empty. In fact, a small amount still had to be done in 1982 by an archaeological team, but it was primarily by then an empty ship. So then we could start on the raising process. But how exactly do you raise a shipwreck? There was this stunning engineer called John Grace who devised a method. I mean, people were trying to come up with methods for years. But his method was very, very clever because rather than just 
trying to sort of dig tunnels and put strops around it and raise it up to the surface. He devised a scheme with several stages. So stage one was to bring out something called an underwater lifting frame. So imagine it was a frame with four legs, but the legs were independent of the frame, so they could be jacked up and down as necessary. Like a big jack-up platform in the North Sea, I guess. So this lifting frame was placed over the wreck. And before it could be placed there, we had to dig four very, very large holes down to fairly solid seabed so that it would be supported. So this lifting frame was put on site. Then the next stage was to wire up the ship to the lifting frame. Very late in the day, the salvage method was changed from the old-fashioned method of putting strops underneath the hull to wiring it up with hundreds of wires on bolts with backing plates. So the challenge was to dig tunnels under the hull that enabled us to put in bolts that were screwed in or bolted in from inside the hull onto great big backing plates on the other side. And then we would uh, put in wires and hold the whole of the ship up to this lifting frame above. And the next really clever process was that rather than just hoiking it out of the water, the frame was then jacked up these four legs so that the first few inches of the raising were done over a period of days, not seconds. And this enabled the, the suction effect of all the mud underneath the ship to be broken. A bit like when a child steps in a muddy puddle, the, the mud just sort of squirms around the boot and the boot gets left behind because it's, it's sort of stuck to the seabed or the puddle bottom. So um, that was a really, really clever idea. And one of the dives I had, one of the really memorable dives I had, was um, at three o'clock in the morning after this process had been done. So imagine the whole hull is just swinging gently from this lifting frame, but literally just two or three inches off the seabed. And my task was to prove that it had been successfully raised. But I had my hand on the ship and I could just feel it very, very gently swaying in the current. And even more amazing than that, as the water sort of came in, was sucked in on one side of the hull and sort of blown out the other as this the ship swayed it sort of puffed out like smoke I mean just like a dragon breathing or something and to me that was a, a really important moment not only because it showed that the whole 35 meter long structure was all swaying in one piece but it was almost that the ship had come alive it was sort of breathing again it was like doing CPR or something so that that's just one aspect of the salvage operation that you know many of us divers had had amazing moments like that I was asked to pass a tool through a gun port to somebody who was tunnelling under the ship in order to fit the wires that went through the ship in, in order to lift it from the crane hook eventually above it. And at that point, I realised that I was handing something to somebody who was under the ship, and I was in the main on the main gun deck. So it was a considerable way under the ship, and they got that far, and it was going to happen. You know, there was no way that, that we weren't going to succeed. It brought, brought it all home that, that uh, it was absolutely going to happen, and it did. But how did it get there? When we left it, the hull of the Mary Rose was suspended just off the seabed under its lifting frame. What came next? The next part of the process that was designed in was that the hull hanging from the lifting frame was transferred underwater and lowered into a, an enormous cradle 
that had been previously positioned on the seabed that was built to the exact shape or as close as they could build it to the shape of the hull of the Mary Rose using the archaeological drawings that one of the archaeologists, Andrew Fielding, and many colleagues had prepared for the people constructing this cradle. So the whole thing was then lowered into this cradle. So for the final lift, which is the bit that the public remember and the public saw in October 40 years ago, was just the raising of this whole contraption to the surface. But it was then cocooned inside uh, the cradle with a lifting frame above, and you couldn't see it much. So I hope people weren't disappointed too much because what they saw was an enormous piece of engineering rather than the the oak timbers of a wooden shipwreck from Henry VIII's day, which you could just sort of spy in between the yellow, enormous girders of this cradle and lifting frame. The raising of the Mary Rose was an exciting historical moment for all those watching. But for many of those working on the project, it was a defining moment in their careers. I'd stayed the night on board Togmore. We were sort of hot bunking, moving between Sleipner, our diving support vessel, and the Togmore, which was a big lifting um, barge that was brought in to, to lift the Mary Rose. And so we woke up in the morning and they were just, they'd been boats the day before on the Saturday the 10th, because that was the day it was supposed to be lifted. And then there was a delay. And we got up on the Sunday and suddenly there were still as many, but not quite as many boats, but still you're surrounded by everything waiting for this to happen. What many people remember about the raising of the Mary Rose in 1982, was watching it on television, on live television, on October the 10th and October the 11th. And October the 10th was a Sunday, and the media and the BBC were always hyping up from that morning, the Mary Rose is going to come up today, isn't this great? Watch on television and listen on the radio and you'll, you'll, uh, we'll give you the unfolding story. And when we woke up that morning out on site, because we were staying out on site, there was this amazing flotilla of ships around us in a circle. There was an exclusion zone. But outside that, it was just it was just like being surrounded in a Roman encampment or something. But we were slightly in two minds because we knew it wasn't going to come up on the 10th of October. But somehow we had to fill eight hours of live television. So one cunning plan that someone had was that I would go in with a camera and take some video footage of the ship underwater and show people different wires and so on. So I took the camera in and the signal from my camera was sent via the wire because it was on an umbilical up to our salvage vessel. Then it was microwaved to South Sea Castle where there was a big outside broadcast unit. And then it was, was literally transmitted around the world. And that is the first ever live outside broadcast that uh, was ever done from underwater, I believe. And we were also checking the hull and doing various various different tasks underwater that day. And Prince Charles, who was one of our patrons, he did a dive uh, just before the salvage in October 82. Really, it was overnight of the October the 10th to 11th that the final preparations were done for the salvaging of the hull. So that in the morning, we could actually start the lifting. Again, fortunately, the BBC had cleared the airwaves and they were going to carry on with this live broadcast. So I think a lot of people skipped school or watched the television through the windows of television rental shops, which was all the rage in those days in the high street, or skipped work or pulled a sickie or whatever to watch 
the final lifting of the May Rose. And I happened to be uh, one of the divers who was chosen to also dive that day. And uh, I've got my logbooks in front of me here as we speak. And I left surface. So I went into the water at 8.26 in the morning and I came out at 11.15, which is nearly a three-hour dive. But the Mary Rose broke surface at 9.03, it says in my logbook. So I was one of the divers actually underwater when the Mary Rose left the seabed in this cradle and lifting frame. And just seeing it taking off from underwater, vertical takeoff, because it was just being pulled up by a crane, and gradually being inched off the seabed, and then all the mud sort of spilling off the bottom of this lifting frame as it went to the surface. It was just a magical moment, but also the culmination of so many hard years of work. I mean, just four years for myself, but... 11 or 15, 17 years for Alexander McKee to see it go up through the surface. And then when it was on the surface, all hell broke loose and the cannons went off at South Sea Castle and there was great celebrations and uh, and popping of champagne corks. But I missed all that because I was still underwater for the next couple of hours. But it was, it was certainly a real moment. And all of us on the salvage diving team and the Royal Engineer diving team, which was another team that worked with us throughout the year, I think the amount of satisfaction or relief, I would say, from finally getting it out of the water was was quite palpable, I suppose the word is, but incredible to have had that experience. Even 40 years on, this is clearly a day that stands out in Alex's memory. Well, it was amazing for a start, the number of people that were in South Sea at the time. Even during the day, the walls were full of, of people who were waiting for the ship to come ashore. But there was a delay because of having to, because we cut off one of the legs of the underwater lifting platform because we couldn't dock it with the uh, cradle. And they had to, to jury rig a false leg in order for the insurance to allow it to come into the dockyard. So there was a delay of about nine hours while all of that happened. And so it was in the evening because it was October, so it was dark quite early. And we were, went to the hot walls, which is an area of the walls of South Sea, the, the fortifications, so that you could see the, the ship coming in through the harbour and everything. The noise was there. You couldn't see the walls for people. And you think, my goodness, it means something to the whole world. But just to see the, the people in, in Portsmouth and the, the sounds and the klaxons as she came through the, the harbour mouth with all the other boats that were sort of around and give, hooting their horns and everything else, it was amazing. You thought, my goodness, you know, they're, they're watching sort of what, what we helped do. And, and everybody had a good time. And a party was well deserved because, as Chris told me, this was a story that captured the imagination of not just the nation, but the world. The public reaction to the raising was absolutely stunning because so many of people had seen this broadcast. In fact, I think it was the longest outside broadcast that the BBC had ever done. Two whole days of it. Because that, that, that sort of perhaps hyped up some of the expectation. But one thing that was, again, really memorable was on the Monday, October the 11th, when the Mary Rose was actually towed into shore. It was towed back into Portsmouth Harbour. Uh, although it was in the evening and the sun was setting or dark, the walls, the hot walls they're called, the, but the walls and the round tower and the square tower, the entrance to Portsmouth Harbour, was absolutely heaving with people, shouting and waving and operating searchlights on the tow barge and the ship that was bringing the Mary Rose in. E even more than when the ship broke the surface, I think that's actually when we realised what we'd achieved. 
Uh, and, and also once it started to come ashore, it was no longer the problem of the divers. You know, we'd done our job. Now it was coming ashore. And to see that reception was absolutely stunning. And the public had raised a lot of the funds that we needed to do this excavation and raising. 60 million people saw that outside broadcast. And what I think is the real test of whether it's sort of entered the public imagination, I suppose you could say, is how it's entered into popular culture in that it's either the question or the answer on quiz shows. You know, it was on stamps, it was on coins, there was a pop song. Businesses were named after the May Rose. You know, there was the May Rose pub and the May Rose bakery and the May Rose this and the May Rose that. And they donated money. And of course, then they started to visit the museum in, in their millions. And, and so it's that proof of the public reaction that I think is so interesting that it's not just up to me or the Mayor's Trust to say what an amazing adventure it was, what an amazing piece of human endeavour. It was a good news story. I, I think that is the proof of the public reaction. Next week, we'll be diving into the past, travelling back from the 1980s to examine the Mary Rose's long lifetime as a warship under the infamous Tudor king, Henry VIII. Many thanks to Chris Dobbs and Dr Alex Hildred for being my experts for today's episode. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Jack Bateman. Additional checks by Daniel Adamson. 